Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you for coming. If you've got a text, I invite you to find Psalm 23. That's if you don't already have it committed to memory. I imagine that many of you do. It's been described as the most famous poem in the history of the world, certainly in the English language, and I imagine in other languages too. It's one of the classic expressions of God, and we're looking at it together. This is the text, Psalm 23. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is the Word of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. This is the word of God. This is the focus for today. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. I imagine that if you're honest, some of you look at that and think, that's the sort of thing you see in Clinton cards. That's the sort of thing that you see in one of those um, schmaltzy signs that your granny used to have on a wall somewhere. If you don't have that reaction, I apologize. Maybe that's just me. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. You see, once you say something like that and take it seriously, it immediately brings you into a clash with worldviews all around you. And I want to be honest about that. And I want to look at that and unpack something of that before we get to the meat of this, the idea that God does lead, that God can lead and that God does lead. There are a couple of worldview issues that we need to get out of the way first. Here they are. Is there a God? If there is a God, can he be known? Is he knowable? And the scripture says that there is a God, he is knowable, but not everyone knows him. Secondly, there is a clash with the worldview that says, who are you to tell me what paths are right and what paths are wrong? That sounds judgmental. It sounds as if you're setting yourself up on a pedestal to tell me what to do and how to live. And that clashes with my idea of autonomy. But the Bible says that there are some choices in life that are right and there are therefore some choices in life that are not right. Who gets to decide? And the third clash is with the idea that the good life is shaped by the glory of God. These are paths that he directs us in for his namesake. So the idea of the good life that we all crave for, according to Bible, is 
is available, it is possible, it is open, it is a reality, but it is shaped not by my own preference, not by my own design, but it is shaped by the glory of God. And that's just three of the clashes. There may be more, but we have limited time. So let's deal with what we can in the time we've got. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. First clash. According to the psalmist, according to the Bible, there is a God. He is all-knowing and he is all-present. He is the true cosmic creator and the sustainer and moral governor. That, that's really in a sentence what the Bible's about. That this universe is not self-made, it's not self-existent, it's not one of many universes all competing with multiverse potential. This is a single universe brought into existence by a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He upholds it, and He sustains it, and He made it for a purpose. And that this God is the God with whom we have got to do business, because there isn't any other. And this God can be known. We can't know everything about him. We can't know him fully. How could we? But we can, as Don Carson puts it, we can know him truly, if not fully. So there is a God, and he's knowable, but he's only knowable if we come on his terms. We are dependent on him to reveal himself, and he has in creation itself and in the Scripture, His written message to us, and supremely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God the Son put on skin so that we could see Him, and watch Him, and listen to Him. This God is knowable, but knowable only if we come and recognize our rebellion against Him, recognize that we need more than a revelation, we needed a rescue. So that to say the Lord is my shepherd is really to surrender yourself to say, I am a rebel against you, the moral governor of the universe, and I recognize that and I accept the provision you have made in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And surrendering to him and what he accomplished at the cross, we become then followers of the Lord Jesus. We become disciples. We become, in the, the language of this poem, we become sheep in his flock. And we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. This is true only as we come by repentance and faith. But it's a claim that there is a God who is noble, but not all know him. And we can only know him if we come on his terms. The second clash implicit in this section is that in life, which is full of choices, not just in the supermarket where we're overwhelmed, but every day life is full of choices, what to do, how to do it, what to say, how to say it, how to spend your time and energy and resources. Life is full of choices, and according to the Bible, some choices are right, 
and other choices are not. Uh, the Bible says there is a place for moral judgment. There are values, and they matter. Now, I realize that that immediately brings us into conflict with many people all around who say, who, who are you to say that? And it seems to me that the one thing that is required of me is that I don't judge other people. And then I ask the question, well, by what morality do you tell me that I don't have the right to judge other people? Because you are imposing a judgment on me by telling me I shouldn't look at other people and assess them. It's actually logically incoherent, isn't it? The people who are rushing to de-platform and to stop people saying things they don't like are exercising moral judgment. We all exercise moral judgment. It is inescapable if you've got a pulse. And what the Bible says is that instead of our moral judgment being shaped by the latest fashion or by what is popular or what is current or what is emerging, that there is an, a moral governor who stands outside, above, and beyond the universe who has got the prerogative to judge how we live and to decide what is good and what is not good. You see, all of us are making decisions about that every day. And we're either paying regard to that moral governor and what he says about what is good or not good, or else we're looking on some sort of horizontal plane where we say, well, this is good because this is what most people like, and this is what is fashionable today in my country, or, but I could take you to other countries where those standards don't apply. So once we put it simply on the horizontal, what other people think, I could take you back to 1936 in Germany. I don't think you'd like the moral standards there. November 1938 at Kristallnacht, I don't think those were very attractive moral standards, but they were very popular. And so if we're reduced to just what people around us think, where ultimately is the basis to stand on anything? Or else some people say, well, it's, it's, it's internal. It's what I myself think. It's, it's how I have come to see things, and I make my own judgments. And the Bible says that's the heart of the problem is that we de-God God, we substitute ourselves or other things for him, and we make ourselves the moral reference point. But the Bible says that's not only mistaken, it's dangerous, it's damaging, it's ruinous. It's the reason why the world is in the mess it is. So the Bible says some moral choices are right and others are not. And God is the moral governor, and Scripture is his explanation as to how we understand the world and how we live in it well. The third clash with contemporary people is this one, that the good life that we all want is shaped by the glory of God. We want the good life. We don't want the good life that God shapes it. We want a life that allows us to find fulfillment and to do what we want, but the good life is shaped by the glory of God. Let me give you an example of that from the New Testament so that you don't think, A, I'm imagining this, or B, that I'm making it up from somewhere or other. It's the words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 5, 16. 
In the same way, let your light shine before other people so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So according to the Bible, the whole point of living is not that I get fulfillment. The whole point of living is to glorify God. That's right, because he is God and I'm not. And it's good because he knows what is best for me. And although my own satisfaction is not the, the litmus test, I'll tell you a secret. As you live life in God's universe, in tune with him, in step with him, there is a fulfillment, there is a satisfaction, there is a joy that is simply indescribable. But it's not the reason we do it. It's the byproduct of living to the glory of God. Because according to Bible, that's why we were made. That's what the universe is here for, for his glory. So, once we have addressed those three contemporary clashes, let me get to the meat in the time I've got left. The Bible claims that God can and does guide us in daily life. He has, in the words of Ephesians 2.10, a plan for us. Paul there says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a little bit spooky, isn't it? that before you were a pulse in your mother's womb, God knew everything about you. Everything about you. And that he had a plan that would be to his glory, your blessing for the whole course of your life. That seems to me to be what the New Testament teaches, if I'm to take it seriously. So that God cares, not just about the big decisions, about what breakfast cereal to have, but also the everyday things of life. He's interested, he cares. But how does he guide? I wish I had more time, and maybe the best thing I can do is to direct you to a couple of resources to let you pursue this yourself. I'm told there are students here. I noticed that there was no age limit set on the free food, and I believe in being a lifetime student. I always, every day is a school day for me. I'm learning something every day from everyone I meet. So I don't know whether the free food has an upper age limit, Danny, but we'll see about that. We'll test your patience and your grace. Well, let me tell you about two helpful resources I found. This is the first one. It's a book by Oz Guinness. It's entitled The Call. If you haven't read it, I thoroughly recommend it to you. And what Guinness does in this book is he says that the God that we have been speaking of, the creator, the sustainer, the moral governor, he has 
what he calls a primary call. It's a universal call, a call to everyone. God calls out to everyone everywhere to repent and to trust the Lord Jesus. That is the universal call to everyone, no exception. Then, says Guinness, the Scripture teaches that once you have responded and surrendered to the Lord Jesus as your Savior, there is a secondary call. It's an individual call where God has shaped you, gifted you, resourced you with experiences and talents and abilities and all sorts of stuff that are unique to just you. There is no one else who's got that set of equipment that you have. And the Bible says, Colossians 3, for example, that you take these resources and in whatever you do, you live to the glory of God and the honor of his name, whether that's in your studies, whether that's in your home, whether that's in a place of retirement, wherever you are, whatever you do. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a more comprehensive description of that. Whenever Paul says whatever, it means whatever, whatever. And so that is the secondary call, the individual call. And it was the great truth that was recovered at the Reformation that work is dignified, that you can honor God washing dishes. The story is told of Spurgeon, the great Victorian-era preacher in London, who met a, a lady who worked as a housemaid in a grand house, and she had come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And he asked her, what difference does it make to you now in your daily life? And she says, oh, now, now, pastor, I, I sweep under the rugs. It comes down to that. Whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. And Guinness says there is a third call, a special call, that there are some people, and God individually comes, and he lays upon them a special call to come aside and to do a particular thing for him and his kingdom. Not everyone gets that, but God can and God does call people that way. So, have you heard the call? Have you heard the universal call? Have you responded to that call to recognize and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? You've got to start there, calling him your shepherd. And then you move from that into the daily grind of the individual call of serving God where he has put you and placed you. The second resource is available from an organization in England called Echoes International. It's a recently published book by them entitled Medicine in Remote Places, A Personal Reflection on Medical Mission by Dr. Ian Burness. I have to declare an interest, Ian's a friend. This recently published book is the story of how Ian and his young wife left Scotland where he was working as a doctor and they went to work in Africa as missionaries, so-called, working in a mission hospital. And then some years later, they left and they came back to the United Kingdom and he became an administrator in this organization then called Echoes of Service, now called Echoes International. And what 
he does in this book, which is a very easy read, and I thoroughly recommend it to you, is he, he, he charts his own life, but he also has helpful reflections. And this is one of them about guidance. And he says, God still calls listening hearts and submissive wills to do his work. So it's got to start there. And then he suggests there are four steps involved in that. First of all, if you have surrendered, if you've heard that universal call and surrendered, and you're now desirous of finding God's call for you and his plan for you as to what that looks like, he says God can and gives desires. And when he gives desires, we need to respond to them. A desire to study his word, a desire to, to grow, a desire to meet with people, a desire, whatever it is, God puts holy desires that are honoring to him and glorifying to his name, and he puts those desires within us and we follow them. Secondly, says Ian Burnett, God then develops within us convictions, interests, firm beliefs about how we can follow him and where we should serve him. And these convictions are from God on which we're meant to act, not ignore, but act. And thirdly, then he says that events, God sends events into our life which will challenge us to go forward or redirect us, closing doors, opening others. God gets involved in opening and shutting opportunities for us as we are submissively following, yielded to him. And as we act, he says, God leads. He puts a homely illustration on it. He says, you can't move a parked car. The car's got to be in motion to, to, to turn it. You can't, you can't turn a car if it's stationary. You've got to have it in motion. And so we need to be walking with God and allow God to lead, direct, redirect to his glory and honor. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. What do you make of it? Schmaltzy or what? This is either a little bit of sentimentality, nostalgia, or else. The start of the greatest adventure imaginable. That the God who is the creator, sustainer, and sovereign of the universe not only knows my phone number and email address, but knows where I live and knows how I tick, and before I was born, knew all of that. And not only so, but that he is so interested in me and my life that when I had gone my own way and rebelled against him and stuck a fist up towards heaven and said, no, I will have my own way, I don't want you. He commissions God the Son to put on skin and to come not only to reveal, great as that was, but to rescue, to redeem. And having done that, God the Son went back to heaven where he's seated at the control panel of the universe waiting to return 
Meanwhile, he has sent the Spirit of God to convict people, to bring them to that point of universal call and surrender, to bring them to that place where they are reborn as we surrender to him, to come in and indwell my body so that as an individual it becomes, in the words of the New Testament, the temple, the dwelling place of God. And he puts us together into community he calls church. And he mobilizes the church by his spirit to go out to into a dark, lost, needy, hurting, helpless, hopeless world and to say there is a God. He cares. He's interested. He wants a relationship with you. He wants more than that. He wants to lead you, guide you. Will you follow him? That's what he offers. I have no time for schmaltz. But for that, I'd give my life. Can I ask you to bow your head in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who came, not simply to show us how far short we fall, not simply to tell us the truth which you did, not simply to reveal God in his greatness which you did, but to rescue us at indescribable cost. 